Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Let's, um, let's, let's begin our study of the Word of God with a moment of, uh, a moment of prayer, and it's an opportunity to confess any sins that we haven't already confessed before we got here. Hopefully, we don't wait to get here to confess our sins. Hopefully, that's not the only time that we do it. We need to keep a short account with the Lord. So, let's take a moment of silent prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you that you have recorded it for us and that you make it understandable to us. We pray for our nation and for our state and for our community. We ask that you guide us in your ways, guide our leaders, restrain the wicked ones, and empower the godly ones. We pray for rain you know that we need it. You knew that we needed it back in eternity past, and so we ask that you provide it because we rely exclusively on you. And we thank you for this time. We ask that you open our eyes that we may see your ways and your truth, that you may transform us by it. We pray these things in the name of his majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in chapter 63 of the book of Isaiah, and so far the prophet has taken us to the future and to the past. Excuse me. He took us to the future in verses 1 through 6, the far distant future, thousands of years from when he wrote, and and it was was not kind of a, a near future, which he will give us today. The prophet begins verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 with this far, far, far look where he's looking to the time of Christ's second coming. It's a time of judgment. And there Isaiah was encouraging the people to trust God because he's reminding them. He's reminding them that God is not weak. He's reminding them that God has the power and the will to bring judgment against his enemies, which includes the enemies of Israel. Isaiah was reminding them that a time was coming when God would finally and fully deliver Israel from her enemies by fulfilling all of the promises. That's the first six verses of the chapter. He's looking to the distant future. Then the next pair of verses, the next group of verses, verses 7 through 14, is Isaiah looking to the past. He's looking to the past to remind the people of God's rich love and kindness towards Israel. When he chose them, when he created them, and when he called them out of Egypt. In verses 7 through 14, Isaiah was encouraging the people to trust God by reminding them of God's track record. This is why we believe God, because God has not lied in the past. God has not been impotent in the past when it comes to fulfilling his promises. God fulfills his promises consistently, methodically, century after century, and this gives us confidence what he has done in the past, history, his track record. This gives us confidence that he will do in the future what he has done in the past, and that's what Isaiah is reminding the people of in verses 7 through 14. He's taking them back to the Exodus. He's taking them back to God's chesed, the beautiful word that we saw last time, his loving kindness, reminding them of the great things that God has done for them, to encourage them in the present. Today in our passage, in verses 15 through 19, Isaiah is not going to look to the future and he's not going to look to the past. He's going to look to the present. But when I say the present, I don't mean the present the way you and I think of the word present. Because he's writing primarily to a generation, to two generations. A generation who will live 100 years from when he lives and 160 years roughly from when he lives. When I say, remember the exile was a 70-year exile. God punished them. God disciplined Israel, and he counted the clock of exile, the Babylonian exile, based on the years of Sabbath. Remember, they're supposed to allow the land to to rest, and they didn't do it. And so God counted the clock of 70 years. Part of the reason why he issued a 70-year exile, punishment for them in the exile of Babylon is because of 
the way they had rejected God's command of the Sabbath. Not the seventh day, but the seventh year. And the, the, the year of Jubilee. All these things kind of count together. And so he calculates a 70-year exile for them in Babylon. But when you do the math, for the 70 years, there are different ways to calculate it. And so... What I'm saying is Isaiah is addressing two generations primarily. He's addressing the generation that is in exile, that was taken, that was ripped from the land as slaves into Babylon. About a hundred years-ish from when Isaiah writes. And he's addressing the the generation 60-ish years. I didn't say 70. 60-ish years from when they return. The reason I say 60-ish is because of the way the 70 years is calculated depending on how you calculate the 70 years. We'll look at that in a later lesson. But my point is, it's present tense for those generations, 100 to 160 years later, because the text is written primarily to them. You see, God is not locked in time and space. He is not in the time and space continuum that we are in. He's independent of time. And he's independent of space. That's why it can be present tense for one generation and not for another. But this is what Isaiah is going to focus on today. He's going to focus on having looked at the future, having looked at the past. He's going to focus on the present tense primarily for those generations who need comfort, who are in suffering, who are not seeing the blessing of God, but they're seeing adversity. Let me just read our passage for today. 15 through 19 of chapter 63. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father. Through Abraham, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while, and our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. This is an intense prayer from the prophet for God's people. It's an intense prayer from God's prophet for God's people where he is interceding. You're familiar with intercessor, intercessory prayer, right? It's where someone intercedes for someone else. You intervene for someone else. This is what the prophet is doing for the people of Israel. He's, acting, he's asking Yahweh to act, to act for them. And what is happening is their suffering, and so he directs his message to them. Let's look at this in a little more detail in verse 15. Look down from your heaven, look down from heaven, and see from your holy and glorious habitation where are your zeal and your mighty deeds. The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained from me. <clears throat> There's restrained toward me, I mean. Habitation is the Hebrew word tzul which means a lofty residence. But when we think of the residence of God, of course we don't think of our residence. I mean, that's the frame of mind that, that, that is our knee-jerk reaction, right? When we think of the term residence, we think of a human residence. Of course, we should not think of a human residence or, or a human dwelling, a human abode, when we think of the habitation of God because we are bound by the earth, limited in time and space, which God is not. God is omnipresent. God is eternal. And his residence is in the highest heaven. The ancients thought of the heavens in three parts. The first heaven, the second heaven, and the third heaven. The first heaven was the realm from the soil, from the earth, the the surface of the earth, up the, the, the atmosphere where the birds fly, where the rain falls from. The second heaven was beyond where the moon and the stars and the sun are, what we would call the universe. And then the third heaven was the abode of God himself. The Apostle Paul says this 
in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4, where he describes the third heaven. When I say he says this, what I mean is he references the third heaven. That's the phrase that he uses because he is taken to the third heaven. And he uses one word, one word alone to describe the third heaven. The third heaven, which is the abode of God. What's the word that he uses? Paradise. Paradisus in the Greek. Paradise. That's the only word he uses in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 through 4, in describing the third heaven. Paradise. This is the word that Jesus uses in Revelation 2, 7, where he describes it as the paradisus of God. The paradise of God. This is the dwelling of God. This is the abode of God. And while Paul was there, he heard, he says, there in 2 Corinthians, he heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul was not even permitted to speak about the paradise that he observed. So when you are at the bookstore or when you're on Amazon and you see some book where somebody says they went to heaven for seven minutes... Let me sell you a bunch of books and make a few million dollars. Your skeptic side should kick in and say, well, the Apostle Paul wasn't allowed to speak of the paradise of God. But you are? No, 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 no. We should be very, very skeptical over someone who says that. My point is, God's abode is an abode that is beyond your imagination. In fact, it hasn't even entered into the mind of man, the abode, the dwelling place of God, and it is only described with the word paradise. We see glimpses of it in Revelation 21 and 22. Streets paved with gold, walls studded with jewels, the tree of life. You see glimpses of it. But what I want you to understand is that the abode of God is utterly beyond us. And it is something that is spectacular. It is from the abode of God, from the heaven of heavens, that God acts. It is from there He takes action. For example, He engages His creation, we're told by the psalmist in Psalm 113, verses 5 and 6. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in heaven? That's the second heaven and the first heaven because he's in the third heaven. Humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. From his habitation, he engages himself in the affairs of his creation, in the affairs of men. Also from his habitation, he rains down wrath on his enemies. The psalmist says in Psalm 11 verse 4, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Upon the wicked He will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And then, of course, from His heavenly abode, He ushers forth blessing. Blessing for His own. Deuteronomy 26, verse 15. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel, I know that you know that God lives in heaven. I I, I get that. But I don't want you to forget the richness of the doctrine of the abode of God. The richness of the paradise that is your destiny. We forget that because we live in a world that is whack. I mean, a world that is upside down, full of wickedness, full of evil, full of badness. All of those things are foreign and alienated from the paradise of God. This is the location that the prophet is appealing to. He's appealing to God in this location, in the paradise of God. What the prophet Isaiah is doing in verse 15 is he is asking God to bless Israel as God has done in the past. And so he appeals to the superiority of God. He recognizes God's absolute superiority. Isaiah is praising God. Notice the words that he uses in verse 15. These are not flippant, casual, accidental words. He uses the word heaven. Look down from heaven. This is a reference to God's 
otherness, his superiority, his sovereignty. He uses the word holy. Look down from heaven and see from your holy habitation. Holy is a reference to the righteousness of God, to the fairness of God. His habitation is also glorious. Remember, glory is the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod means heavy. This is a reference to the absolute, complete importance of God. Isaiah says, where is your zeal and your mighty deeds? A reference to omnipotence, the stirrings of your heart, and your compassion are restrained towards me. Compassion is a reference to God's grace and to God's mercy. Why is Isaiah heaping praises on God? Does he think that he can butter up to God and kind of schmooze him a little bit? And if he sucks up to God enough, then God will deliver on his prayer? Anybody? Anybody think that? No. No. Why does he praise God? Because there's no other way to approach God. He asked God for action. He asked God to act. And the reason he does that is because of his faith. His faith in God. You understand? Faith has two elements. Two elements. Faith in God has two elements. Element number one is you must know the word of God. Element number two is you must believe it. Here, Isaiah knows the word of God, that God is sovereign, that God is holy, righteous, that God is full of glory, full of power, full of graciousness. He knows those things, and he trusts in them. Two elements to faith. You can't have one without the other. Knowing the word of God and trusting in it, believing in it, relying upon it, What Isaiah says here is, God, I know that you're all of these things. I praise you that you are all of these things. I know in the past you've done mighty deeds for Israel, verses 9 through 12, the mighty deed of the Exodus, but I don't understand. I know you're all of these things. I believe in your essence, and I believe and I understand that you have delivered us in the past, but I don't get why you're not acting. This is a very candid prayer from the prophet of God. He's asking God, why are you inactive? You seem indifferent to what is happening. He trusts in who God is. He trusts in his essence, but he is confused because Israel is suffering under her enemies, and yet God does nothing. Nothing. So it seems. When I say that Israel is suffering under enemies, let's talk about the two generations that, who are the primary target, the primary target of this message, the primary audience of the message. Remember the first generation, the first generation that I'm talking about are the, is the generation who was ripped from the land under Babylon, under King Nebuchadnezzar. Back then, when you took captives, it was a brutal, brutal, brutal affair. So they're in suffering under the boot of the Babylonians. Then the next generation, it's true They're released, Cyrus and the Persians release them and send them home. But when they get home, they don't get back to Shangri-La, right? I mean, it's not this, this, it's not the, it's not Grand Cayman on the beach sipping on a frozen drink, okay? When they get back to Judah, it's desolate. There are no walls of the city, which means you have no city. The temple destroyed. The Samaritans don't want them to rebuild. Their neighbors don't want them to, be, to, to rebuild. And so there is persecution from their, the peoples around them. This is why I, Isaiah says, I call out to you. I know you're a God who has the power. I know you're a God who's righteous. I know you're a God who's delivered in the past. Why don't you deliver Now, I know you're a God who's going to deliver in the future. Why don't you deliver now for these people? What Isaiah is doing is he is observing, and you see this at the end of verse 15. He is observing that God in his choice, in his sovereignty, has chosen not to act. Look at the word restrain. You see the word restrain at the end of verse 15. The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. This is the kithpael stem of this verb. And what that means is it's reflexive. The verb restrain is reflexive. And what reflexive, the way reflexive works is 
the actor who's doing the action, the verb, is doing it in relation to himself. I brushed my teeth. That's reflexive. Right? I put my shoes on. Well, maybe that's not the ideal reflexive example. But reflexive is the actor is doing the action with respect to himself. God is restraining, intentionally restraining. Everything that God does is intentional. He is intentionally restraining his what? His compassion. It's a bad, bad, bad spot for the people to be in. In Isaiah 63, verse 16, the very next verse, we're going to see the prophet continue his plea. But now he's going to speak in the first person plural. Not the first person singular, not I and me. But this is a we and a us because he's speaking on behalf of himself and the righteous remnant. Excuse me. Verse 16 reads like this. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Isaiah makes his plea to God based on who God is. You can't have faith in God unless you know who he is. You need to know his word through which he discloses himself. And then you must believe it. This is how Isaiah is making the plea to God. He makes the plea to God based on God being the Father and the Redeemer. Very important words in verse 16. The Father and the Redeemer of Israel. When Isaiah says Father, he means the God who created Israel. Deuteronomy 32.6 tells us, discloses this reality to us. There we read, Is not he, the he there is Yahweh, is not Yahweh your father who has, brought, who has bought you? He has made you and established you. That's what the term father means. It means he created Israel. He made them. And then the term redeemer means the God who delivered Israel from her enemies. Exodus 6.6 6. God said to Moses, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Redeem is the Hebrew word ga'al. That's the verb, ga'al, to redeem. You use it as a participle, and you get the redeemer, the one who ga'als, the one who redeems. Same word that is used in that rich, rich book of Ruth, right? with the Boaz the Redeemer, Boaz the kinsman Redeemer, who sacrifices, who provides out of his largesse to Ruth and to her mother-in-law, Naomi. This is the description that Isaiah is calling on. That's what he's relying on. This action that God does as Father and as Redeemer. At the end of verse 16, notice the use of the word name. Isaiah says, since from of old, your name has been Redeemer of Israel. Of old is the Hebrew word olam, from the ages. That's olam. Olam means from the ages, from eternity, from long ago. You can translate it from old. You can translate it as from the ages. You can translate it from eternity. He's saying that you've always been our Redeemer. Isaiah is staking his prayer on the integrity of God, on the integrity of God's name. Today the world mocks God's name because they mock God. The name signifies his essence, signifies who he is, what he does, Father, Redeemer. And so Isaiah, the prophet, calls on the name of God and stakes his prayer on the name of God, this makes perfect sense. Because in the past, Yahweh has delivered Israel because of his name. I mean, we've been reading about this. Just turn back to verse 12, just a few verses back. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 12 reads like this. Who divided the waters, the waters there are the Red Sea, who divided the waters before them, to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths, 
The depths of what? The depths of the Red Sea. Look at the end of verse 14. So you, held your, so you led your people to make for yourselves, yourself a glorious name. Everlasting name. Glorious name. Isaiah calls on the name of the Lord because the Lord delivered his people because of his name. To make his name great. Now, of course, God's name is already great. Maybe it's better to say to display the greatness, the already greatness, the forever, the olam greatness of God. This is why he chose, created, and called the nation of Israel. Isaiah is relying on the name of God, on his character. He's doing this because he's relying on not Israel. Isaiah is not relying on Israel. He's relying on God. You see this in this language in verse 16 where he says, Abraham and Israel don't know. Abraham and Israel, they don't recognize. Isaiah is not relying on his racial heritage as being a Jew. The reason there's a reference to Jacob, remember, God renames Jacob with the name Israel. And so, why does it skip? Why is he skipping Isaac? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Isaac is the son of, you got Abraham, Isaac's his son, Jacob's his grandson. Why the skip of, of Isaac? No mention of Isaac. Because the reference to Jacob is a reference to Israel. That's what's happening here. And so in verse 16, we see this language of I really should say the reference to Israel is a reference to Jacob. It's, it's uh, referring to the person. Isaiah is doing something very different than the Pharisees, right? The religious leaders of Israel, they rely on their racial heritage. Not on the God of Abraham. They rely on Abraham. Here, Isaiah says, those guys are dead. They've been dead for well over a thousand years when Isaiah is writing. Abraham and, and Israel, also named Jacob. They've been dead for centuries. Abraham says, they don't know me. They don't know us. They don't recognize us. I'm not relying on them, God. I'm relying on their God. Remember what the Pharisees did when they're talking with Jesus? In John eight thirty nine? they say, Abraham is our father. Because the Pharisees, they don't want to rely on Jesus or on his heavenly father. Instead, they want to rely on their racial relationship to Abraham. Isaiah is doing the opposite. He's doing the opposite. He's relying not on his racial relationship to Abraham, but on his spiritual relationship with the God of Abraham. Look at verse 17. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? What? Is God saying, is Isaiah saying that the Lord is causing them to stray? I mean, that's what it says, right? Why, O Lord, do you cause, cause us to stray from your ways and harden our hearts from fearing you? Straying from the way of God is another way of saying sinning. Right? What is sin? Sin is disobeying the will of God. What in the world? is happening in this verse. We know, let me say up front, we know that Isaiah is not saying that God is making them sin. That's an impossibility. James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God can have nothing to do with sin other than to judge it. So let's just start with the premise as we analyze this verse that says in its words that God is causing them to stray, let's start with the understanding that it cannot mean that God is forcing them to sin. Because that's an impossibility because God can have nothing to do with sin other than to judge it. And God does not tempt anyone. Here's what's happening. Two things. Two things often happen when someone gets cemented in their rebellion against God. 
Thing number one is the judgment of God, abandonment judgment. Abandonment judgment, which we've studied before, where God abandons us to the, to the death spiral of the sin that we're engaged in. Where the person rejects God and God shows them mercy. God, God doesn't drop the hammer on them. And the person rejects God and God shows them mercy in another way. And the person rejects God and God shows them grace. And the person rejects God and God shows them grace in another way. And then he finally says, I leave you to your own devices. I turn you over to your own sin. I abandon you in your sin. You see that in graphic, grotesque detail in Romans chapter 1, towards the end of Romans chapter 1. Two things happen when someone is engaged in intense, continuous pattern of rebellion against God. One is abandonment judgment, and the other is judicial hardening. It's what theologians call judicial hardening. Hardening. That means someone's rebellion against God becomes so intense that a point comes where God removes their ability to repent. Let me say that again. Someone's rebellion against God becomes so intense that God removes their ability, their opportunity even, to repent. This is after God has given time and time and opportunity and opportunity and opportunity to repent. And the person scoffs at it. And the person rejects it. And more grace and the person rejects it. More opportunity to repent and the person rejects it. And they squander their opportunities to repent. And then a time comes where God says, you're finished. Oh, I'm going to keep you alive a little longer for some other purpose, but not for the purpose of repentance. Maybe I'll keep you alive so that you can serve as testing for someone else. Maybe I'll keep you alive so that I can display my power to a wicked world. Like he does with Pharaoh, right? I mean, Pharaoh, there are ten plagues. The first five plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own, hardens his own heart. Over and over and over and over and over again. And it's not until the sixth plague do you see God's judicial hardening. Because it's not until the sixth plague do you see that God begins to harden Pharaoh's heart. You say, this is not fair. Careful with that. Be careful to judge God. Because the minute you judge God, you are now sinning. God gives time to repent in His righteousness, in His fairness. And He gives it over and over and over in His graciousness. But then a time comes where He says, no more. No more time to repent. Now, we need to be careful this side of heaven because we don't know where anyone is. Don't assume that someone's time to repent is over. Don't assume that in pride and in arrogance because many people believe at the very end of their lives like my grandmother did, after she heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it wasn't until the very end of her life that she believed. So don't ever assume that someone is beyond the point of repentance. They may be. God may be judicially hardening them after he's given them ad infinitum opportunities to repent. But that's not your business. You give them the gospel. What's happening here is abandonment, judgment, and judicial hardening. That's what we're seeing in the first half of verse 17. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. I want you to see how judicial hardening comes from the hearing of the Word of God. God uses the preaching of the Word of God to bring about judicial hardening. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 That chapter is the chapter about the call of Isaiah. Isaiah says in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? A reference, a glimpse at the Trinity, by the way. Then I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. 
Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. What's God saying? He's telling Isaiah, he calls Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and he says, go preach. And when you preach, it's going to harden their hearts. It's going to make their eyes dim and their ears dull. It's not that they're not going to get it. It's not that they're not going to understand the words. They're going to understand them, and then they're going to reject them. And you giving the word of God to them is going to harden them. This is what's called judicial hardening. Remember, Israel had had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to submit to God. And so judicial hardening only comes after God in His rich grace has given time and time and opportunity after opportunity to repent. God has brought about judicial hardening for Israel various times in her history. And in fact, he's doing it now in the church age. Paul says this in Romans 11.25 where he says, a partial hardening that has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the last Gentile walks through the door of faith, then the partial hardening, the judicial hardening, will be finished. But God has brought about judicial hardening on Israel in the current age. Why? To use the language of Romans 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Because God has elevated the church, made of Jews and Gentiles, of course, but primarily Gentiles. God has elevated the church above Israel temporarily during this age. And part of the way He has done it is is through judicial hardening of the Jews during the church age. This is very, very, very serious. And we need to approach the topic with great caution and great humility. But the Scripture is clear that God imposes judicial hardening as one of the punishments for continued rejection against God. And judicial hardening and abandonment judgment really are kind of two sides of the same coin. They're interconnected. Back to Isaiah chapter 63. In verse 17, in the second half of verse 17, Isaiah asked God to relent concerning this to relent concerning abandonment judgment and judicial hardening. Look at the second half of verse 17. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your inheritance, the, the, the tribes of your heritage. Isaiah wants God to bless Israel like he has in the past. He wants Israel to receive her heritage. The reason I just mangled that word inheritance is because it's, Really, the better translation is inheritance than it is heritage. It's the Hebrew word nachala, which means inalienable, hereditary property. Inalienable, hereditary property. That's an inheritance. Nachala, translated here in, at least in the NASB, as heritage, is probably a better translation as inheritance. I think it it communicates the picture more Effectively, I think the NET has inheritance. Isaiah wants Israel to receive the inheritance that Yahweh has promised her. This is the promised kingdom that's promised so many times in the Hebrew Scriptures. But the only way for that to happen is if Israel submits to God. So Isaiah is calling for God to bring a revival. That's why he wants the hard-hearted rebels to become servants. That's that's the word that's used, right? It's the word that's used at the end of verse 17. Servants. He wants the hard-hearted rebels to be transformed into servants of God. Now, God doesn't make people submit to Him. Let me be clear about that. We have free will. We have the ability to choose for Him or choose against Him. Now, is there a time of judicial hardening after after so many opportunities of, of repentance? Yes, there is. There is. God brings revival. But the sovereignty of God and the free will of man both coexist 
And Isaiah is asking for a revival. He's asking for a revival in Israel so that God would bring the blessing that he has always promised. Remember the Mosaic Covenant, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Look at verse 18. Your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Isaiah is emphasizing God's ownership of Israel. Notice the word your. He's now used it four times. Verse 17, your servants, your heritage. Verse 18, your holy place, your sanctuary. The Hebrew scriptures frequently refer to Israel as Yahweh's people who are called by Yahweh's name. You've seen this before, but let me refresh your memory. Passages like this that make clear that Israel is the special is the special people of God. Deuteronomy 28 verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself. They're his. The Jews are his. Described as the apple of my eye, meaning the pupil of my eye, the most precious part of the body. God doesn't have an eye. God doesn't have flesh. He's spirit. But it's an idiom that describes great value. And so Deuteronomy 28 verses 9 and 10, the Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, Second Chronicles seven fourteen, the text that we're all familiar with, you've seen this before. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. My people, he says, Yahweh's people, Yahweh has called them by his name. You see this passage in Second Chronicles 7. Remember, that's the dedication. The context there is Solomon dedicates the temple and he prays to God and God's response is this response, which by the way is right out of the Mosaic law. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. Now, Sometimes we in America claim this verse for America. And this is not the right verse for us to claim. I mean, there are passages that say that God blesses a nation for obedience. But this is a verse that is exclusive to the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel is called by God's name. Not just Elohim, the generic name, the the general name of God, but by the covenant name of God, by Yahweh's name name they are called they are called Yahweh's people Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 now then if you will indeed obey my voice Yahweh says and keep my commandment then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation you see Israel has a special calling as the people of Yahweh called uh, by his name They're called to reflect and to communicate Yahweh's glory to a lost and dying world. They didn't do that, right? You don't get more intense rebellion against God than seeking the death and killing His Messiah. I mean, that's the most intense rebellion which they did with Christ, right? In the first century. They have been set aside temporarily. They're still God's people. It's just they're set aside. And so there will be a time when they are elevated again, but that's not in the church age. Notice the word sanctuary in verse 18, at the beginning of verse 18. Sanctuary is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple, Isaiah says, the sanctuary was there for a little while. A little while is 374 years from when Solomon built the temple to when Nebuchadnezzar came in and sacked and destroyed and burned the temple 374 years. And so in our minds, we say, well, 374 years doesn't sound like a, what does it say? A little while to me. Honestly, it doesn't seem like a little while to me because my frame of reference is the United States of America, which is not even 250 years old. Soon, 250 years old. Hopefully we make it a few more years. That's my frame of reference. So I think 374, wow, that's a long time. But Israel's been in existence for almost half a millennium before Isaiah writes these books, and so this book. And so 374 years fits this 
description of just a little while. Look at the end of verse 18. Our adversaries have trodden it down, have trodden the the sanctuary down, have trodden the temple down. This is in the past tense. You say, whoa, 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 wait a second now. Temple's not destroyed until 586. Isaiah lives in 700 B.C. But he says it's in the past tense. He says the temple is being trodden down by our enemies. This is a prophecy. This is a prophecy about the destruction of the temple. And this drives the liberal theologians bonkers. I mean, just bonkers. Because they do not believe in the supernatural revelation of God. And so what the liberal theologian does is he sits behind a lectern in a liberal seminary and he teaches the next crop of pastors to not believe in the supernatural revelation of God. God doesn't love his people enough. God doesn't love his people enough, the liberal theologian says, to supernaturally comfort them by giving the people who are going to be in exile, the people who are going to return from exile 100, 160 years later, by giving them the words of comfort to say, wow, God really does love us. He disclosed that this would happen, and this was written by Isaiah a century, a century and a half before. How encouraging would that be? when you're under the boot of the Babylonians, to pull out the text, to know that it was written over a century before, that God had me in mind, and He is looking out for my interests. He's, he's assuring me. He's comforting me. But the liberal theologian says, God can't do that. Because God doesn't speak in terms of super, supernatural terms to His prophets. And so what the liberal theologian does is he comes along and says, no, there was a deutero Isaiah. There was a trito Isaiah. There couldn't have been one Isaiah, Isaiah's son of Amos, as he's referred to in the very first verse of the book. There's not one Isaiah who wrote the entire book because this stuff had to be written by someone who lived after 586 when the temple was destroyed. Because the whole concept of the temple being destroyed was unthinkable. I mean, our temple's been here for centuries. This is why the liberal theologian says, no, some second guy who took the name Isaiah, or some third guy, Trito Isaiah, who took the name Isaiah, who was really, they won't say this, but who was really lying and posing as Isaiah, but he wrote in the spirit of Isaiah, in the school of Isaiah. That's how the liberal theologian massages and rationalizes this supernatural revelation of God that God gave to that generation a hundred years later and the next generation who will be returning from Israel to comfort them, to show them that God is sovereign, that God prophesies and His word comes true. That's what's happening here at the end of verse 18. We are seeing the prophecy of God. It says, Our adversaries have trodden it down During the time of these two generations, the ones that would come 100 to 160 years later, Israel's enemies, the pagans, would trod on the temple. And this would be on the the temple, where the temple was. The temple was destroyed. And so the feet of Gentiles, of Gentile armies, would march where the temple was. Something that was repugnant to the Jewish mind. Something that was a source of anguish and pain and discouragement for Israel. This is why the prophet begins the chapter with Yahweh trotting the enemies of God to encourage the people. The Gentiles are going to, the enemies of Israel are going to trod the temple. So Isaiah begins the chapter with Yahweh trotting on the enemies of Israel. Remember the grapes of wrath that we saw there in verses 3 and 6, how Yahweh trods on the peoples in his anger. What Isaiah is doing here is encouraging. Remember, we're in the part of the book that is primarily written to future generations, to that, that, that future generation that would be returning from exile to a temple that had been destroyed, to a Judah that was under Annihilation to a Judah that, that, laid, that had laid fallow for decades. Then finally we get to verse 19. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, 
like those who were not called by your name. This whole passage that we've been studying today is this intense, candid prayer from the prophet of God to God. That's how we should pray. When you don't get it, say, God, I don't get this. When it hurts, say, God, this hurts. When, it, when you don't like it, say, God, I don't like this. But you always end with, you're God and not me. That's the way Isaiah prays. And here at the end, here in verse 19, he's praying this intense lament. It's a lament about how far Israel has fallen. In her rebellion, Israel has become like any other nation. They stopped viewing themselves as belonging to Yahweh. They stopped viewing themselves as having a special relationship with Yahweh. They erased from their collective memories their history. Their history with God. Their history as to what God had done, or to use the language of verse 15 where we started this morning. They erased from their collective memories the zeal and the mighty deeds that God had done on their behalf. They erased their identity as being called by His name. If I could put it in our lingo, they created a wall of separation from God and their schools. They created a wall of separation from God and their government. They created a wall of separation from God and their courts. You see, Gentile nations like us, like the United States of America, we follow the pattern of Israel. We follow the pattern of her rebellion and we do so at our great, great peril. Are we Israel? Of course not. Israel is Israel and the church is the church. And we are, the United States is a nation within the church age. But we see the pattern. The pattern's not that different. Because we've erased, I'm talking about the United States, we've sought to erase from our collective memories what God has done for this nation. And we suffered the consequences for it. Are we in abandonment judgment from God? Are we in judicial hardening from God? I think there's a pretty good argument that we are. I don't know. God's in charge of that. But it doesn't look good. We see our pattern of rebellion in observing Israel's pattern of rebellion. Because history repeats itself and the sad thing is that the vast majority of humanity does not learn from history Isaiah is praying for revival and we should do the same for our nation let's close in prayer Father we thank you for your word we ask that you encourage us by it implant it in our souls strengthen us that we may walk forth from here and be your servants, and to speak it in truth and love to a lost and dying world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.